Good morning. Uh, it's great to see everyone this morning and uh, our visitors. We really appreciate that you've taken time to assemble with God's people when you're away from home. Um, it's always encouraging when somebody has the mentality that being away from home does not mean being away from the Lord. Um, assembling with God's people um, should be one of our highest joys. And uh, it should be something that we, we are so eager to be involved in and attached to because when we come together, what we're learning more and more about is we're understanding more by God's way of revealing uh, the Lord who redeemed us, you know, and how significant and how glorious Jesus is and how, how wondrous it is that we can be called children of God. Um, and if you are visiting, um, you've come into the third lesson of a series we're doing. We're looking at Elijah and Elisha this year. And one of the things that uh, what we're looking for in this series in part is seeing how Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament uh, do things that typify Jesus in many ways. Uh, Elijah and Elisha are prophets, meaning that they just spoke by direct inspiration by God. They acted as God dictated them to act. There were prophets before Elijah and Elisha, and there were actually, what we'll see even this morning, there were a lot of other prophets who were living in the times of Elijah and Elisha, but these, these two men were still very unique in God's overall plan. They didn't teach sermons like so many other prophets did. Think about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. Those are prophets who they, they spoke. Uh, Elijah and Elisha, they more, they more acted and did things that themselves serve as sermons of themselves. And we're going to be in 1 Kings 18, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. What's probably the most uh, memorable uh, event of uh, Elijah's life, at least, is where we're going to be, in this, be this morning. And just a couple of things to catch us up. Um, it's helpful to understand where we are in God's working with Israel when we're in Elijah's lifetime. It's been about a thousand years since Abraham's life. Uh, everything that God has been doing since Abraham has been to fulfill those promises that were initially made to him. Uh, God brought a people out of Egypt through Moses, which is something God told Abraham that he would do. Then God planted them in a special land that he had promised, which he told Abraham he would do. And then he made kings come from Abraham, which is also something he promised Abraham he would do. And in the time of Solomon, God's promises found a sense of physical fulfillment which really wasn't their true fulfillment. It's more like how they typify the greater fulfillment because all along the way, all of these things are all about God zealously working to make Jesus and his kingdom as clearly known and as clearly visible as possible, right? Now, unfortunately, as with all of the things that God did in the Old Testament, every time he blessed his nation, they would turn it into a curse, so God unified the nation under David and Solomon, but when Israel was at its peak, uh, it, it split apart because of Solomon's uh, really incredible sins that he had committed with idolatry. So the nation split. You've got Judah here on the bottom in this more purple color down here, and Jerusalem is about 10 miles from the southern border of Israel. Jeroboam the first king under the split of Israel and Jerusalem, he put two idols, uh, two golden calves, one in Bethel and one up north here in Dan, so that the people of Israel wouldn't feel compelled to travel to Judah. Remember as well, Judah 
in the times of these kings you see on the top, there's one king who pretty much uh, reigned during the whole period of time we have here in Israel's uh, period of leadership, which is Asa. During the reign of Asa, remember, Asa was leading Judah in a time of complete spiritual reform. Asa served the Lord. They were, they were winning incredible victories because of their faith. The nation was being renewed and restored to God in ways that were going back to the reign of Solomon. And there were many people of Israel, remember, defecting to Judah. Uh, Elijah instead chose to stay and endure the collapsing kingdom of Israel to love them and to speak to them in a way that would reveal God's heart. Remember that in chapter 17, Elijah, excuse my shaky hand, had been in Zarephath with a widow. God is going to bring him down on the western side of the border to Mount Carmel, which is here, trying to circle it there. Mount Carmel is at the northernmost border of this little spot. And so Elijah's going to come south and reveal himself to Ahab in this chapter. And so we're going to start in chapter uh, 18, verses 1 through 15. Um, this is how Ahab was seeking and would find Elijah, but that God also was seeking Ahab to find him. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go. Show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave, provided them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, perhaps... We will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? He said to him, It is I. Go say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. He said, What sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you are saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. It will come about when I leave you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave, provided them with bread and water? And now you are saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So think about the scene. They've been in a famine now for three years, which is an incredibly long time. Um, I looked up you know, famous famines in history. And uh, a lot of famines, even just being less than a year, there are sometimes thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who die in famines that last even less than one year. So imagine three years, how absolutely debilitating that would be for the nation. And remember Ahab is in a series of kings who in chapters 14... 
Oh, I'm sorry, my Siri thinks I want to talk to him. <laughs> Technology always does strange things when you least expect it. Uh, but all of these kings on the, on the top side in Israel, each of, them, each of them were testified to be worse than the ones before him. So Ahab was the worst king so far in a series of already evil kings. So remember that the famine came on the land because of the fact that Israel had forsaken their God and had been doing so since they divided away from Judah in the first place. So at the end of this three-year famine, we have this scene where God tells Elijah to go meet Ahab. So you have Elijah, Ahab, and Obadiah. Now, when Elijah goes to meet Ahab and Obadiah, I think the scene is very important with uh, how, he, how he finds them. And the first point in this, God's patience is not a victory for the ungodly. God's patience is not a victory for the ungodly. So Ahab had been instigating idolatry in ways that went beyond any king before him. And his wife Jezebel, in verse 4, had been destroying the prophets, it seems, probably out of a reaction to the fact that Elijah, a prophet of the Lord, had called this famine on Israel. And it would look like that the ungodly are flourishing and succeeding. They're persecuting the prophets, even putting them to death. They're, even though they're suffering famine, Ahab, being royalty, being the king of the nation, probably was suffering less in the famine than the common person or the poor person would have been suffering. But one of the key things is God's patience was not a victory for the ungodly. It was a victory for the prophets of the Lord who had to be hidden. It was a victory for Elijah, who was hiding away for years at a time, waiting for the moment when God would reveal himself to the nation. The prosperity of the wicked is not to draw us to desire what the wicked obtain, but rather to even more zealously pursue the Lord and his judgments. Another thing is, Ahab got to the place where his, his nation was in a position of just damage control, trying to salvage what they could. And I think this put Ahab in the position where he had become, in some physical sense, like God to know him. So first, he had been searching every nation looking for Elijah. Couldn't find him. Because Ahab needed to understand that finding the Lord's servant doesn't happen on his terms. It's on God's terms, right? But then in the earlier part of the verse, in verse 5, he was looking even for any sign of life so that he could preserve life in his kingdom. And that's really like God. God searches for even one person. God looks to preserve life in any way that he can, and one thing that is hard to understand because of the greatness of God's graciousness is God's dealing with the world is salvaging what he can in a broken and collapsing uh, place. That Ahab, his kingdom, it was a collapsing kingdom. There was nothing he could really salvage. There's nothing he could do anymore with the famine that was in the land besides just look for anything left over, right? And that's what we have to understand is God is zealously seeking for any person that he can find to preserve life and to restore it, just like Ahab. Um, forgot to put a note in there for uh, 17 through, or 16 through 19. Let's read that as well. So Obadiah went to meet, uh, oh, I'm sorry, this is the note for 16 for 19, I'm sorry. Uh, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and, uh, and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. 
When, Elijah, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, Have I troubled, or I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel and Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. One of the things that uh, I think we can take out of these uh, these verses, who is right? Was Ahab right that Elijah was a troubler of Israel? I mean, he's the one that called the famine. And the reason there had been a three-year famine was because Elijah did call on the Lord to cause that to the nation. And you think how many people were suffering because of this famine. How many people were deprived of food? How many people may have even starved because of the famine? But who really was the one who had troubled Israel? Elijah's role was to put God and his place back into perspective. Our role is to prove God just and justify God. One thing with sin is it ruins God's reputation. If you look back at verse uh, 9, even Obadiah, who feared the Lord greatly, thought that Elijah coming to him was somehow bringing sin to remembrance in his life, somehow God trying to punish him. And if you look at verse 18 of chapter 17, Remember that the widow that Elijah had been taking care of also thought when her son died that that was God's way of bringing her sin to remembrance. We are too quick to blame God as the source of our trouble. And we who know the Lord, like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, our role in so many ways is simply to proclaim the excellencies of the God who has brought us out of darkness and put us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Our role is to prove God to be just and to prove his kindness, right? And to put our sin back into perspective. Who's to blame for the suffering that's in the world? Uh, Mike recently linked me to a video where an atheist was talking about how monstrous God is because of the way that children suffer in the world, right? The ironic thing is he was obviously somebody very prosperous and successful. It always seems like it's somebody who's living in prosperity, who thinks God is unjust for the suffering of others. But it seems like it's people who are suffering who are actually most drawn to value God's kindness. It's really, really ironic, right? So again, our role is to prove God to be just. But another thing with this too is Elijah's fearlessness to reprove Ahab is important because God in rebuking the proud and dealing with the arrogant is making an appeal to strengthen the humble. You imagine how, like, the lowly and the humble, like the prophets who had to be hidden in caves, how you could easily feel like you were forgotten. But there's something about when a bully is rebuked by somebody that gives, that gives courage to those who are being bullied, right? See this when, like, for instance, if you're in a classroom, and let's say the person who's teaching the class is saying a lot of things against God, and just somebody in the class actually speaks up and they defend the scriptures, Oftentimes that can make people in the classroom all of a sudden bond together because they'll say, you know what, I believe that too, right? People might have renewed courage because of one person taking a stand. So in the same way, when God deals with the proud, it's to humble, it's to appeal to, and to strengthen the humble. And if you look at the end of this in verse 19, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Asherah, 
where were they? You've got a hundred prophets who Obadiah managed to save, probably more who he wasn't able to save, who were stuck in caves, hole in the ground, eating bread and water. And yet these 800 prophets of the Asher and Baal were eating at Jezebel's table, which would have been royal, right? The reward of compromise, however, is a short-lived lie. By the end of this chapter, these prophets will be seized and put to death. You imagine how drawing that would be if you were looking at things from an outsider's perspective. God's prophets are being deprived of what seems like our basic necessities of life. The prophets of the Asherah and Baal are receiving favor in the eyes of the leadership of the kingdom and great abundance at the same time. And you imagine if you're looking at things as they are in the world, how you would be drawn to think, surely here is where favor stands, rather than with the people of the Lord. But again, the reward of compromise is a short-lived lie. Let's look at uh, 20 through 29 in seeking vindication. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen. Let them choose one ox for themselves and Cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that is a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. First thing that Elijah confronted the prophets with, and the people in general who are called here, um, if God is God we need to make a choice. If God is God, if God really has put himself in history, if God has proven himself true, especially with the sending of his son in the history of the world, people can't be left in a place of indecision, right? So if God is God, there needs to be a choice that gets made. We can't be left in a position of indecision. Either we serve the God or serve God and acknowledge him as God and serve him alone, Or we refuse to acknowledge that he is God and remove ourselves from that position. So divided loyalty is not permissible. Divided loyalty will always seem, though, to give some sense of added security. Divided loyalty will always seem to give added security. Think about when Jesus was talking about serving money and serving God. 
that it's impossible to two serve, serve two masters, but why would that be so appealing? Well, because if I can serve God and serve money, then I get the benefit of being able to acknowledge God, but I get the security and the safety of also having a loyalty to money at the same time, right? And so I think we need to understand the draw of idolatry will always be that there's some sense of greater security or in a different way of saying it, it may seem as if there's an escape from the trouble and the suffering that would be brought on me if I were to serve the Lord alone. You imagine again the prophets of the Lord hidden in caves and how you could begin to justify yourself and say, well, I mean, I'm not a prophet of Baal. I'm certainly not a prophet of the Asherah. But I also want to feed my family and I want to get as much as I can from the king so I don't necessarily want to fully devote myself to the Lord. If I acknowledge the Baal and the Asherah, I may have maybe a little bit of access to something from the king for my household, right? So imagine how you can begin to justify the security that you gain from having at least in some way a divided loyalty separated from the Lord. But that security, just like that last point in the previous verses, is a short-lived deceitful lie. As unsafe as it can seem to serve the Lord, the ironic thing is suffering in the name of the Lord is the place of complete security and safety. Right? This is related, this last point is related to the prophets of Baal. It's important that we understand how embarrassing this was, right? Notice how long this took. In verse 26, it mentions that they were leaping about the altar and like raving around it from morning until noon initially. So let's, let's give the benefit of doubt and say it says four or five hours. If you look in verse 29, they continued until the time of the evening sacrifice. This would have been at least eight hours that Elijah is just sitting here with all Israel and these prophets of Baal, hundreds of prophets, are doing this nonstop. So you imagine some people might like take a lunch break, go away and say, you know what, I'll come back maybe in about an hour and see if it's still going on. They come back and they're still doing it. And you imagine if they weren't cutting themselves before the lunch break, you come back and they've, they've really ramped things up a notch. Now they're cutting their shoulders and arms, cutting themselves on their bodies, and they're crying out even more loudly. So imagine how ridiculous this would look and how convincing this would be that Whatever God Baal is, clearly, at best, he clearly does not care at all for his people. And the thought that self-deprecation, self-destruction, is how you win the favor of your God, why would you want to serve a God like that? Why would you want to pledge your loyalty to a God who requires you to destroy yourself to gain his favor or attention? So here's the thing. God doesn't need our blood. God's not asking for our blood. He gives us his blood. The ironic thing about this is this serves as a type of Jesus even still. Even though they're doing something that's so far away from God, this still typifies Jesus. Because you know, as, as maddening and as silly as all of this was, God's actually the one raving, leaping, with his blood gushing out, crying out, listen, listen, listen. There's no response. No one listens. And just like Baal looks like a big joke, God looks like a big joke. 
because God embarrasses himself. Doing what these prophets did in sin and ignorance, God does in righteousness to try to win our favor. Another thing is, who is the servant and who is the God here, right? They thought we as servants of Baal, we're the ones who need to leap about, cut ourselves, right? A big part of the work of our faith that the Old Testament, I think, helps us with is understanding truly how low a position God has to stoop to to win our attention. How far does he really have to go? How desperate is he? Think about Ahab again when he was searching for for Elijah, how he had sent to every kingdom. I don't know if that means every kingdom literally in the world or if it's just every reachable kingdom. You can find people and go pretty far when you really are desperate. You imagine when a parent has lost their child, the search parties they send out, the relentlessness that they pursue to find their child. They look over every nook and cranny of their community and they'll go outside of their community looking for their child. When somebody really becomes desperate, like really desperate, it's amazing the lengths that they'll go. You know what my problem is? I do not appreciate the lengths that God is forced to go to reach me because of my unbelief. Because here it is. It's right there. I read a little bit about God. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We're good. And yet, the effort and the sacrifice, the pain, the time, falls on deaf ears. Let's continue reading, 30 through 40. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the, of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized, the pro- they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. So this first point, God's testimony being based in his faithfulness. God's testimony is based in his faithfulness. Look at the way that Elijah built the altar back in verse 31. Not only was it an altar of God's worship that had been torn down, 
Elijah repaired it with 12 stones representing the tribes of the sons of Israel. He didn't draw any attention to this. Somebody may have seen him do this and not even realized that that's the reason he was doing that. But everything about the way that Elijah handles this scene is meant to bring to remembrance God's faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness and his commitment to his own nation and his love for his people. This is not about Elijah vindicating himself. This isn't about Elijah proving himself or like looking for some glory that Ahab has taken away from him that he deserves. This for Elijah, it's all about God's glory being recognized even apart from him. It's about Elijah allowing God to make his own statement about himself in relation to God's own special people. This is something that the world misunderstands about evidences for God. Um, One of the things about the way that God testifies to himself, in, in scripture, although this kind of thing can be useful, you don't see in the book of Acts that they tried to debate God on the basis of scientific proofs. They didn't try to philosophically like persuade someone. It was all based on what God had done historically and how that related to Israel, his people, and what that now means for you because of God doing these things on the basis of his faithfulness. And the reason why that's important is because if I understand how God works in his faithfulness toward his promises and in his love for his people, then one, I'm set up to have courage and confidence in my faith in God's ability to keep his promises, that God will fulfill his commitments. But two, I'm comforted by the power of God's love and the reality and the manifestation of that love. So God's testimony is based on those two things, his faithfulness and his love for Israel. But then as Elijah built the altar, his, his testimony exceeded every agreement or expectation. I mean, the agreement was just build an altar, cut up a sacrifice, put it on, cry out, and whoever's God answers by fire, that truly is God. So that was it. And yet Elijah builds a trench or digs a trench around the altar and three times pours so much water that the trench was filled with water. The animal would have been covered in water. The wood would have been covered in water. And this would have gone so far beyond the terms of the agreement, it would have been so much more evident how impossible it would be for God to do what even had been agreed even beforehand. That there is no fire that can possibly be lit on an altar of this nature. But another thing, too, is look at verse 38. How much did this fire consume? What they may have been expecting is maybe the fire will just consume the sacrifice in the wood. But if you look at verse 38, it consumed the offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and the water. It took everything associated with the altar, and it was gone. Now imagine, somebody says, well, I don't believe that happened. There's no altar anymore. I mean, the dust, the place where it was built, it's all gone. I don't believe that. The impact that this had, the witnesses who were present, is more than sufficient. 
You know, one, people that, one thing that people don't think about enough, the impact Jesus had on the world. In one generation, for the message about a crucified Messiah to spring up among the Jewish people who were not expecting that in the first place, for one, but then for two, to worship a man as God, if you didn't believe in Jesus, illegitimately was blasphemy, punishable by death. And everything that the Christians would bring forth who were Jews from the Old Testament would only further prove that this was the key to all scriptures. Not only does it overthrow Jerusalem and even exceed the existence of the temple of that city, it then takes over the world in its time. In a world where not pledging allegiance to the emperor as a god was again punishable by death. So you have this random teaching in this little city that then goes beyond that city and even goes into the world and takes over every culture it enters into in its time. Folks, that's worth looking into. That's worth looking into. Then you have eyewitnesses who themselves testify not only of having seen Jesus, but you read the impact that he had on their way of thinking and living. And that's not worth looking into. So God's testimony exceeds and defies every expectation. There was nothing that Elijah could have done to in any way have powerfully testified as God's own personal way of doing it. Look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. It's an interesting parallel here um, related to this that seems like is um, a type of Jesus. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. John in 1 John is really dealing with primarily people who don't accept God's testimony set apart from any person. Who Jesus really was and who God sent him to fully be. In verse 6 it says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. There are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The spirit, the water, and the blood. With this altar, you have fire, which came down from heaven to consume it all. It's the testimony of the spirit. You have the blood of the sacrifice and the water that was drenched on it and all around it. And those three testified of God's unique glory. Jesus. The Spirit could be that at his baptism that the Spirit of the Lord descended on him like a dove. It could be his resurrection, raising from the dead. The blood being his sacrifice on the cross and the water, again, either his baptism or that when his side was pierced, water came out with the blood. And those three are in agreement. So just as God testified to the people in Elijah's day, just so Jesus more fully persuades us today. So if if they could acknowledge that the Lord is God on seeing that, what Jesus has revealed about God is more powerful and magnificent and complete. 
Uh, turn back to 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 18. You look at the extra competence that this then gave the people uh, in, verse th- in verse 40. That the prophets of Baal were seized and killed at the brook Kidron, or brook Kishon. Because God's testimony was so perfect, and it went so far beyond any expectation, and because it was so clear, they had confidence to then obey in a way that the testimony itself did not demand. So when the fire came down, what I mean is, it's not as if God spoke from heaven and demanded further obedience. God was not forcing anyone to respond in any certain way. But again, God's testimony is to exalt his relationship with his people, to bring the low high and to bring the arrogant low. So finally, they're seeking revival, 41 through 46. Then Elijah said to Ahab, uh, and then Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there's the sound uh, of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Mount of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times. It came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, go up say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. So just imagine this scene. Elijah tells Ahab to go up and eat and drink. Elijah goes to pray seven times, and there's this tiny little hand cloud coming up out of the sea. And he tells Ahab that there's going to be a heavy shower, so he needs to hurry to Jezreel. And verse 46 is one of the weirdest verses in the entire Old Testament. He runs in front of Ahab's chariot to Jezreel. And I don't imagine that Elijah was like this great runner, you know? Like, I don't imagine he was like this super athletic guy. Um, I don't think he spent those three years in uh, Zarephath, like, training for this. It seems like this was something that God strengthened Elijah to do. It shows both Elijah's zeal for Ahab, but also God's zeal to begin reinvigorating faithfulness in his nation. The point of all of this was not that Ahab had to be dethroned from being king. The point was that Elijah and God were seeking some way that they could preserve Ahab's position and help him to become the king that he could be if he repented and turned to the Lord. Um, So first thing, God's promises don't undermine our role, they magnify our role. Sometimes it could be said or thought, God's going to do whatever God's going to do. Whether I pray for certain things, whether I do certain things in the long term, in the grand scheme of things, it won't matter at all. Because God is God and who am I in comparison? That's a way of thinking that really doesn't come from Scripture. So you notice again in verse 43, seven times Elijah had to tell a servant to go back. Because God was working with and through Elijah's fervor. They were co-workers for the sake of his promises. So we have to understand that God is God, but God has chosen by covenant to attach himself in humility to us and to work through us. I think this is in some way what Paul meant in Philippians 2 when he said, 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our role, because of God's covenant, is not diminished. It is all the more important when we understand what God is doing and how unworthy we are to receive something so astonishing that he's offering. But having a passion for God's promises is so important. Notice as well, Elijah in verse 41, you can hear you can hear his excitement as he says this. Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy shower. You can just hear how enthralled he is that this, this now can renew the nation to be what God had hoped and purposed it could be. Our passion for God's promises can help other people to see the reality of those promises. It can lead other people to believe in those promises. Second Peter chapter 3 will say that we should be looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord. And so we want to have a passion for God's promise. But again, it's when we have assurance in God's faithfulness and love for his people. God will do what he's promised, and he will not fail. And look at uh, Isaiah chapter 44, leading into Titus chapter 3. Um, the invitation of the lesson is that even though this heavy shower would have renewed the land of the nation to cause the fruit, uh, the fruit of the nation to be born again, ultimately... What God has promised is that he's offering a greater revival if we'll understand our famine and barrenness spiritually and his ability to bring that to an end. Uh, Isaiah 44, 1 through 4, sorry, 1 through 5. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. And turn to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Um, God promised that the coming of the sending of his spirit would be that moment when the promise of this kind of revival would be fulfilled. If you look at Titus 3, I think it gives us the fuller picture of these things. Titus chapter 3, 3 through 7. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The problem with the world is that the world is in a famine, and they don't even know it. Our role is to help the world understand what kind of famine God has sent on the world and what he's offering through his son to rejuvenate and to restore into a condition never understood before. Uh, so if you're subject to the invitation, if you're not a Christian, if you are able to understand your barrenness and the barrenness that your sins have caused, Consider Jesus who is offering a renewed and rejuvenated life, not in the flesh, but in the spirit of God. 
And if you'll repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, you can receive the hope of salvation and the heir of the eternal inheritance today. If there's any other need that needs to be made known at this time, please come forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.